If you're a small business owner looking to grow or expand your business, check out OnDeck Business Loans. OnDeck offers business loans online from $5,000 to $500,000, and their simple application process only takes 10 minutes. Unlike banks, they'll give you a decision quickly, and funding is as fast as one day. Get a free consultation with an OnDeck loan advisor. Visit OnDeck.com podcast. This is the Customer Equity Accelerator, a weekly show for marketing executives who need to accelerate customer-centric thinking and digital maturity. I'm your host, Allison Hartsoe of Ambition Data. This show features innovative guests who share quick wins on how to improve your bottom line while creating happier, more valuable customers. Ready to accelerate? Let's go! Welcome everyone. Today's show is about getting into the customer's state of mind and to help me discuss this topic is Brooks Bell. Brooks is the founder and CEO of Brooks Bell Inc. an experimentation consultancy. Brooks, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. So I first want to call out that you know you call yourself an experimentation consultancy, and a lot of people throw around the words testing and optimization. Can you just talk a little bit about what you mean by an experimentation consultancy? Well, we've been around for almost 15 years, and believe me, we have used all of the above with <laughs> optimization and A-B testing and experimentation. And... Um, and what and, and the reason we call ourselves an experimentation consultancy um, is that with optimization, um, optimization is a great word because it implies value creation, um, which of course is we like showing the value of what we're doing, and optimization does that. But optimization doesn't. It applies to so many things in your life. There's SEO, search engine optimization, but then you can optimize things far beyond just data and your website and your marketing. So I don't think it really describes exactly what we do. And actually, our mission statement is to make every day better through optimization. Purposefully thinking about using the idea of optimization and kind of test and learn and iterative improvement to improve our life. But optimization doesn't really describe what we do and the specific value that, that we create. And so we think that experimentation is a little bit more descriptive of what we do. Experimentation is about you know, being scientific, measuring things, and typically splitting you know, into different variables and to answer your questions or make your decisions. Okay, got it. So what does the team specifically do at Brooks Bell? You know, you, you've touched on a couple things about experimentation, but do you have a particular set of things that you typically hit on? Yep. Yeah. So we're an experimentation consultancy, and there are there are five broad offerings that that encapsulate uh, that. The but the big thing that we're trying to do, more generally speaking, is helping our clients build a world class experimentation program. Mm. Um, in many cases, that means we're helping them get a centralized team, a center of excellence, uh, structured and, 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 and built, um, and, all, and help them create a process, help them build a methodology to test with, to help them have the right technology stack that will enable this, kind of looking at it more broadly, of how to scale an experimentation team, and then ultimately 
impact their culture to be more of a, a data-driven culture. So they're using experiments to, to drive every decision. I was wondering if you were going to say culture because that, that's just such a big part of uh, the testing and experimentation mindset. I'm so glad you pulled that out. So tell us a little bit more about your background and you know, how, how did you basically get to this point of um, creating culture change in organizations through testing and, and excellence of you know, um, creating, creating culture change through organizations, through the right technology, the right methodologies, and of course, the processes and excellence. Well, I've been doing this for almost 15 years now, um, long before there even re- really was much technology in this space. In college, I started a website company, and I was literally designing websites for dentists, (laughs) local (laughs) dentists in in North Carolina. I had a degree in psychology and my approach to design was just slightly, you know, more psychology based. And so around that time, the largest um, technology powerhouse was America Online. Mm. And they had a completely closed environment, technology environment, where they had literally written their own engineering language. They had all, all their data, um, their own analytics platform. Their data was clean and connected and powerful. Wow. And so they had had the right environment to build an absolutely incredible testing culture. So I'm sure you remember when, you know, in the early 2000s, you would get spammed with all those um, CD-ROMs. That That's would send right, you. <laughs> right. You know, people building yeah. these artworks out of uh, all those CDs. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the reason they kept getting zanier and zanier is because they were testing them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were doing, the, and there were no rules, no brand rules whatsoever. You could literally put like a pink flamingo and no creative director would stop you. Huh. So they did the same thing online with pop-ups and pretty much every digital effort that they did, they would test it all. So what what limited them was creative. And so they would go around finding tiny firms like mine, and they would show you the control, and they would say, there's no rules. You know, here's $5,000. Design us five new pop-ups. You can literally design anything you want, but it must beat the control. And if it doesn't beat the control, we're not going to hire you again. And if it does, you know, we'll send a little bit more work your way. So they gave me that little challenge in 2003. Mm-hmm. Miraculously, one of my first five pop-ups did, in fact, beat the control. And they gave me another project, and I beat the control again. Nice. And, um, yeah, and, and I fell in love with A-B testing. Um, I thought that this is what the internet is built for. I mean, you have all this data. You, ha- you know, every website has some kind of, you know, purpose, some, some measurable action. And I could see how the smallest changes in creative would really drive value and, and make a difference. Oh, and yeah. also it tied into psychology. It gave me this direct connection to the end customer. AOL's, you know, kind of brand and all that stuff wouldn't really get in the way. And that was what really drove my passion for A-B testing. So we launched Brooks Bell in latter half of 2003 to focus on A-B testing, primarily with AOL, and, um, and became one of our top three agencies over the next three years. What's amazing, though, is that testing actually destroyed the brand. I mean, they were so performance-oriented. They, there was a lot of be- bad behavior that that led to. 
And I also got to see the dark side of testing. So one day in 2006, they laid off 5,000 people, all of which were my clients, and dropped from 85% of my revenue to 15%. And the next several years, we diversified our client base and started to realize that no one was testing. No one had the data or the culture or the process or anything like that at AOL. And it became clear that we needed to shift our focus away from just the creative piece towards just helping companies just un- see the value of experimentation and, and, uh, and get the same culture and data fidelity that, that we saw in those early days at AOL. That's amazing. What a fantastic story, Brooks. And congratulations on 15 years. That's almost unheard of in this space. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's, and I think only now is the technology and the data actually ready for companies to benefit from this. I mean, it took so much longer than I expected. I agree. I, I think that's just mind-blowing right there, how far ahead AOL was, and we certainly don't really give them credit for that, and how mm-hmm. much longer it got everybody else to get the memo. But I think you know things are moving more quickly now. So when we think about the customer mindset, and obviously on this show when we talk about customer, we're really trying to tie it to equity, you know, to actual dollar value. And you know, it seems obvious perhaps that you should get into the customer mindset, but tell us a little bit more about what it means to really do that in you know, today's data-driven world. Well, I think with experimentation, it is such a powerful weapon that you have. In, I mean, weapon may not be the right word, but it's a powerful asset. Whoever owns experimentation, it's kind of like having this little ball of fire. You know, you have so much power if you have data to back up your points. I mean, any data gives you power, but experimentation gives you far more power as an individual because you now have statistically significant results and you can win every argument <laughs> almost. I love so, that. And that's a, lot, yeah, that's a lot where experimentation starts, where someone, you know, wants to have that power and so they bring it in and um, to use it, they start using it to drive their own agenda within an organization. But testing really should not stop there. Um, what happens next is that the rest of the organization starts to discover it, and it starts to be used to drive not just an individual's agenda, but to drive the company's agenda. And so I think of this actually in an individual sense. I think of it as a series of orbits. You know, the, the person's center, of the, you know, the center is individual, and the, the, then the company is orbiting around this individual. And experimentation can start to align the agendas of, of both the individual and the company. Once you start thinking about driving revenue or, or whatever the strategic goals are of the company, the third orbit, though, the last ring, is the customer. And what I think is the true power of experimentation is to ultimately use it to not just drive the individual and the company's agendas, but to drive the customer's agenda. And it's one of the few approaches that where all three of those can be in harmony, but it's also the hardest leap to make to lead to the, the customer's agenda. 
We talk about uh, the maturity curve a lot, and it's very similar in that you're starting with these very tactical things, and then you kind of align on the department, then you align around the company, but you finally start thinking about the customer later because, it, you know, where is the customer department, right? There's a customer service mm -hmm. department, but the customer spans across the organization in so many pieces mm -hmm. that it's incredibly hard for companies to do that. So I can see why you put it in the third orbit. Is really hard. I mean, it's not just about this conceptual idea of being customer centric, but you have to completely rethink your metrics and um, the type of data you collect, how teams are organized, how teams are incented, how you communicate, and also your core values. How, you know, the types of decisions executives make that do truly attempt to put customers above revenue with the idea that in the long term they will align. And that's really the key, isn't it? You know, long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. How do you translate mm -hmm. that into testing? It's not easy. Um, <laughs> with testing, if, if you're on a, you know, you're looking at a one-month cycle with a given test, clearly, and you want to have a statistically significant success metric uh, within that month, you're limited to fairly short-term metrics. But you can also come back and do cohort analysis. So you can go back and rethink whether or not that test actually did win with your longer-term metrics. So, and we highly recommend doing that as much as you can. But that is kind of the downside of testing is that it does encourage more short-term thinking. And so the team needs to be pretty diligent to have you know, a series of metrics. You have the test success metric, but then you also use your intuition about knowing whether or not that was actually a good idea. One example I have for that actually is that for a financial services company, there was a test that we were looking at trying to drive up mortgage applications and looking at a landing page, optimizing a landing page. And of course, there are a couple of metrics you can try to get pre-approved online, but really they wanted you to call into their call center. Um, and then the and the call center would then handle the application and, um, and they would lead into the application starts and then ultimately an application complete. So they did not have the technology at that time to connect a call into an application complete. And so the success metric was calls. So we redesigned the landing page, added some, some really important content like the, the mortgage rate and a mortgage calculator made it a much more effective landing page, but the call rate went down 30% when <laughs> we rolled this out. It's an epic fail, right? It calls your success metric. But when you think about it, when we added the rate to the landing page, the reason that people didn't call is because they were calling to get the rate, and, and now they didn't need to. <laughs> of course, we couldn't actually measure whether or not they applied through a different channel or if they left that experience more satisfied. And that is a case where really that was just the wrong success metric, too short term, and we should have insisted that we don't even run that test because testing can send you down the wrong path for the customer if you're not able to measure customer-centric success metric. Mm -hmm. that, that's a, a perfect example of short-term driven KPI that's full of confounding factors and is not long-term. Now, I imagine when you're running tests, you run into that kind of complication all the time where you're trying to get more detail than just the quantitative input. Can you talk a little bit about what the best tests have and how you pull that customer mindset through? There's a few different ways that we think about that. 
One is at the very beginning of when you are deciding what to test. Having both quantitative data and qualitative data and bringing those together is your best bet for getting the customer view right at the beginning. If you only focus on quantitative data, you're more likely to make short-term decisions, focus on the wrong things that will make the experience worse. If you also have qualitative data to supplement it, then it, it helps you get back into the mindset of your customer. And so we have a methodology where we try to collect as much research as we can at the beginning of every test and bring together a cross-functional team, not just the analyst and the developer and the business owner, but also the designer and the researcher, to go through a series of questions about what are the customer problems, who are the customers, what do they like, what do they likely care about, how much information do they have. And then we also use some behavioral economics to help drive some ideas of what might solve these problems. We've taken a lot of different theories and kind of summarized them in five different buckets that we call the pains and gains. The pains and gains are anxiety. Could the customer be feeling anxious? And if so, what would be some things to test whether or not we can reduce his anxiety? Another is mental effort. How much mental effort does this actually take today? Should it? Should it not? It's a high consideration. Then you may need a lot of information. Like if you want to get a mortgage, clearly that's a very important financial decision. You want a lot of information. But you also want to figure out what's the right information in the right order. Mm-hmm. Um, other lower, lower considerations, you want less, less mental effort. There's money. How much is money a factor? And then there's value. What's the value proposition? And does the money match the value? How well are we communicating the value? And then the last is time. Is time a driver in this case? Kind of back to the financial example, applying for an application is going to take you a lot of time. And you need to collect a lot of sensitive information like your social security number, maybe some checking account numbers or that kind of thing. And so helping give them awareness of, of time. Is it going to take them 20 minutes? Is it going to take them two minutes? That kind of thing, but realizing that a factor in their state of mind. That's, that's a fantastic framework. I love that. But I have to ask this question about when you're pulling all these different people together, it strikes me as a little bit of cat herding. How do you get you know, the person who's in charge of research to agree or come together with the person who's in charge of UX? And how does it not become mm-hmm. a battle of opinions? Well, the way we structure it is there's usually a leader of this group, and they collect the research, and they send it out and collect pitches from everybody else. So it's by position as a pitch where they're pitching to the core team and then go through kind of essentially a prioritization technique where like how much impact will this have? What's the level of effort? What's the business value? And they kind of do it together so that by the end of these ideation sessions, the team has together kind of ranked these ideas. And we haven't thrown any out. We've just ranked which ones are easiest and the highest value. So there is some consensus. And what's great about these sessions is that you get like 10 to 20 good ideas out of it and they come out ranked, and everyone is on the same page, there's consensus, and then you don't need to come back together for like another few months because you've got a bunch of ideas to roll with in the meantime. Oh, that's so perfect. So it's efficient to, yeah. to do this once. 
it reminds me a lot of audits, you know, technical audits where you figure out all the different things that need to be captured and then you kind of say, well, you know, how hard is it to do this, ranking them by level of effort. So very familiar from the technical side, but a, a brilliant way to bring it together from the, perhaps from the psychological side or from the testing side. I love that. Now, I also enjoyed your banking, your mortgage example. Are there other examples that you have around testing? You must have billions. Well, maybe not billions. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe more like hundreds or thousands. <laughs> we do have lots of examples. It kind of depends on what we're trying to get across. But it's actually harder than you would think to have tons of examples because with experimentation, we actually just launched a tool last month called Illuminate that's a rep testing repository precisely because we were finding that it's very difficult to continue to get good examples. Good examples is what everyone wants to hear, and case studies is what helps you increase your expertise mm -hmm. in experimentation. And as I build an experimentation consultancy, I want all of my people to be experts. And the way I do that is by making sure that they all hear these amazing examples and case studies for our clients so they can learn from each other and the work that each of the individual teams are, are doing. Same thing for our clients um, when they're building an experimentation program. How do they change the culture? It's through really great case studies and examples that lights people's imagination up. And it's really hard to do that because most times the folks who are running the test, it's a small group, highly technical and tactical, and a lot of data emerges from them. They look at whether or not it won. They, we only look at did it win? How much value did this create? And looking at all the really technical details, the, the success metric, the segments, you know, yeah. the secondary metrics, all that stuff. It's complicated and takes a really analytical mind to get it. As soon as you step outside that small group, all that kind of data is just totally overwhelming. And there is no real story that's been communicated. Data kills the story. That is transferable. Yeah, data is killing the story. So I have seen this firsthand in my own company. I'm, you know, a couple steps away from my core client teams. And of course, I want to hear all these, you know, what we're doing and what we're learning. It's been much harder than I expected. The solution is not just saving all your tests. It's saving them and also trying to dig into the insight. What is insight? And what insight is transferable. Mm. If it's not transferable, it's not actually that interesting. And a transferable insight shouldn't be so high level that applies to everyone. Like if someone says, oh, we learned that everyone likes saving money. Okay, that's obvious. I didn't learn anything new or didn't change my mind about anything. Uh -huh. um, if someone says like, oh, the blue button works on, you know, because it, I don't know, had high contrast or something against the white. Okay, that's not also not transferable because it's tied directly into just that site or just that button or just that page. Mm -hmm. So what we've seen is that the most transferable insights are not so high that they're not interesting and not so low that they, they don't mean anything outside the context, is that if it has to do with the state of mind of the customer for that brand. Nice. A good example is Lowe's. They're not one of our clients, but one of my data scientists used to work there. And he said that one of the most powerful insights that the experimentation team developed a couple of years ago was that 
At Lowe's, people shop for projects, not for products. Oh, And that came out from like deep analysis and looking at patterns over and over again. And I said, oh, I mean, Lowe's was structured by department. You know, if you have your wood department and your cabinet department and your, and like they don't really talk. And so they're different suppliers. But once they realize that's not how customers think, they don't go just buy wood for wood. They're buying it to build a deck and all the other things they need to build the deck totally changed how they are structuring their doors, how they train their salespeople, wow. how they organize their site. So is it is it common that when you find that kind of brilliant transferable insight, it's a little bit of a head smack? Like, oh, it I should be. I mean, those are the best ones. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's what you're looking for, the head smack. <laughs> the, yeah, the head smack level insights. And that is when the testing program can drive true change. And it's the reason that most experimentation programs don't go there is because we're trying to be scientific in our efforts. There's a lot of hesitancy to ever suggest something that the data didn't fully prove. No individual test is going to have, you know, the, you know, say like, oh, people want to shop for projects versus products. All it just shows you is a bunch of outcomes. And what you have to start to do is get in the habit of starting to think, well, you know, why? Why did this, you know, why did I get this outcome? What are all the possible explanations? And you have a way to save those explanations and start to get, you know, and help people have the courage to start documenting these potential explanations, which might be totally wrong, might be totally right, but you need to get people to start asking it, writing it down, and getting the, the courage to, to go there. Um, we, and we have, a, we have a whole kind of methodology around this with yeah. an insight framework that we also just rolled out, and it's actually part of the product that we rolled out as, as a way to save all of these, we call them customer theories, and then insights. Um, but it starts with having the courage to, eat, to step away from the data just a little bit and start putting out ideas for what may have caused that, and specifically ideas around the customer mindset. Would you say that's kind of like a marriage between big data and little data? You know, things you don't necessarily have an overwhelming tidal wave of data to prove, but through a couple points or case studies, you suddenly realize an insight. I think there's um, just still a lot of room for human in, uh, intuition <laughs> to to be you know to be at the table. I think not everything can be addressed just through brute force of having so much data. I think, of course, machine learning can be helpful and give you some ideas, but it's I think that's still an imperfect method. You need to still combine. Um, your, you still have to deep, think deeply, you know, like there's just no way around not thinking in this, in this industry. <laughs> we've got to like, we've got to think about what we, why we think this is happening. There's still room for creativity and it needs your intuition. What really makes sense. That's awesome. I love that. Um, when, when you talk about, you know, earlier you were talking about behavioral economics and you talked about the five pains and gains. And I wondered if when you're looking for things that are transferable and you're looking for those deep insights, are they naturally pinned to one, some, the better the insight, the more um, numbers of behavioral economics areas it knocks down? Is there a connection between the two? The, between insight and behavioral economics? Between the five uh, behavioral, between the five pains and gains and whether something is transferable. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think, um, it, well, the, what's helpful with the pains and gains is that it can give you some ideas. It can send you down a certain path to start to essentially use tests to research. You know, are people feeling anxious? How much mental effort are they feeling? Um, it puts you in that framework of the customer mindset at the beginning of the test. When we're looking for something transferable, that is usually happening at the end of the test. And actually, there's this concept we have rolled out called the hypothesis. So at the beginning, you start a test that is not, you know, it's a little bit of an evolution of a hypothesis, you know, what, what most hypotheses look like. But at, at the, the foundation of a hypothesis is an if-then statement. You know, if we do this, then, you know, if we do X, then Y will happen. And within testing, it's usually if we do X, Y will go up. Um, and so I don't really love it because we've usually already said what we're going to change, and we've already said what the success metric is. In many cases, a hypothesis is you're just combining those two things. If I change this thing, I expect the success metric to go up. <laughs> and so you're not adding anything new to the conversation with a, a standard hypothesis. You're not thinking so we're deeply. Trying to, you're not thinking deeply. Or you haven't really said, okay, what am I really trying to learn about the customer? Am I trying to learn if they're anxious? Am I trying to learn how much information they need to make this decision? Um, and that's not where you really cap in a standard if-then statement. Mm -hmm. So with a why hypothesis, we want to add the, you know, why we're doing this. The way we phrase it is, if this wins, if changing this wins, then here is why we think it has won, or here's what we think we've learned about the customer, kind of depending on the type of test that we're doing. And so that gives us the opportunity to incorporate a little bit more of the behavioral economics up front. I see. And, the, and then on the back side of the test, we're going to get far more data than just like what, that one thing. It's much richer picture. So we might um, have learned, yes, you know, customers are anxious for this reason, or we think they are. Um, but now what if, it, what if it didn't win? What if it's flat? What if it loses? Now what? Now did we, what did we learn? Now we have segments. What if it won in mobile but not on desktop? Now did, what do we think? So now we have this much richer set of customer theories that we can start to produce um, that goes way beyond just the initial hypothesis. Wow. I mean, it sounds like a tree that's branching out. And so every time you find another spin or another dimension, it just kicks off another test. So it's like a, mm -hmm. a cascading effect, right? And, and mm -hmm. is that what it yeah. should be internally? It yes. It should be driving towards iteration. This is very much of a model that is that's founded on iteration. And so not every testing program has the right culture to support such an iterative approach. But if you want to build a, a customer-centric organization, then this is the path towards that. If you only care about this quarter's revenue, it would be difficult to get the buy-in for this type of approach. I love it. I love it. So we, we started talking a little bit about the beginning and the end of the test. Let's just say I'm, I'm loving the experimentation idea and I want to go kick it off internally. What is the right order of operations for me to take these ideas and implement in my company? Well, it starts with choosing the right success metric. And it's, that's one of the most important decisions that you'll ever make. If you choose something so short-term like calls, 
then is setting you up for going down a, a non-customer-centric path. If you set up something that's too long-term, like NPS, that is very customer-centric, you will never have a winning test. They'll all be, always be flat. So finding that, that balance of the right success metric, that you have the, you know, the a reasonable tech stack that, to support it. And then, so you start the success, success metric, then you collect as much qualitative and quantitative data as you can, um, and you get the team involved. You have uh, multiple perspectives to really enrich in the, the test idea. Uh-huh. And then you, and you start to tell the story up, up front um, of what we're gonna learn about the customer. Once you run, and then once you run the test and you finish, you get all the data, you get the group back again, do a, an insight session, get everyone talking about why, and then you build that case study with the, with the narrative and the story um, that includes whether or not a won or loss, but you do that extra step after the finished test is finished to come back and tell the story of the test and make, make that kind of the overall testing process. Perfect, perfect. That sounds that sounds ideal. So, if uh, people want to reach out to you to ask more questions about Illuminate or behavioral economics or other things, how can they get in touch with you? Um, well, we're we're still kind of old school. They can email me brooks at brooksbell dot com, <laughs> and I'll answer them or hand them off to the right experts to help them out. We have Instagram account. I think it's brooksbell inc. and um, Twitter. Same thing, Brooks Bell or Brooks Bell Inc. Um, they can reach us any of those channels. I have to say, I'm old school too. That's why I laughed. I'm like, yeah, email, still the best way to reach me. <laughs> or text Leave me a voicemail. You know, yeah. just call me, leave me a voicemail. Talk Don't do to that me. actually. <laughs> Oh, funny. That's great. All right. Well, let's summarize a little bit about what we hit on. Um, first, we talked about why should I care about finding the customer mindset? And there's there's really a lot of different dimensions here. But what I, I liked uh, was that you hit on the different orbits. You know, in today's data-driven world, you've got lots of different things that are moving around. But the orbit of solving for the stakeholders agenda first and then moving up to the company's goals and then moving into the broader customers agenda seems like a very logical path i mean ideally i personally would like to see everybody starting at the customer agenda but it's just not reality you've got a lot of forces working against that so get it going with at least solving for an immediate challenge and then we talked a little bit about the impact we really hit on short-term versus long-term thinking here and there were a couple times when I was dying to interrupt with CLV as one of our classic long-term metrics and I do think that's pretty powerful I appreciated what you said about NPS being something that takes a long time to come through and in many cases short-term long-term it's all relative right so but I, I think the the example you gave about the mortgage company and driving to the KPI call rate which basically you know was not only short-term but was confounded with all sorts of um, information about why they call not coming through that measure uh, was it was a really great example of short-term and long-term thinking but then you went further and you talked about the customer mindset which is based on what we hear who are they how can we infer 
what it is that they are in need of. And this was where you talked about those five buckets of pains and gains, the behavioral economics of anxiety, mental effort, money, value prop, and time. And particularly why that's valuable at the beginning of the test where you put the why hypothesis together. You know, if X will happen, that's a great place to start, but then add in why uh, you think it's valuable to the customer, or why it's, um, why we think we're going to learn something interesting. And then you parry that or you, you add the end of the test aspect that data kills the story. So what you're looking for is that transferable impact, that head smack. And that's also where the, the why hypothesis drives the story for you to think a little bit more deeply about the customer. What did we learn? Uh, how are these complexities in customer thinking impacting the different things that we're doing as an organization? And then, of course, the iteration of tests. I've talked a lot there. So, Brooks, is there anything that I missed? Did you want to feed in more detail? No, I think you really summarize it super well, better than I could have. <laughs> Thank you. That's that's my journalism degree, my background coming in. I just I loved your story and, and everything we talked about. I, I oftentimes think that I know a fair amount about testing, but boy, I, the the way that you pick up the sense of the customer and load that in is really elegant and, and well done. So highly encourage folks to reach out to Brooks Bell and her company if you are looking to do a testing program. So as always, everything we talked about is going to be at ambitiondata.com slash podcast. Brooks, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Allison. Remember, everyone, when you use your data effectively, you can build customer equity, especially through testing. This is not magic. It's just a very specific journey that you can follow to get results. Thank you for joining today's show. This is Allison. Just a few things before you head out. Every Friday, I put together a short bulleted list of three to five things I've seen that represent customer equity signal, not noise. And believe me, there's a lot of noise out there. I actually call this email the signal. Things I include could be smart tools I've run across, articles I've shared, cool statistics, or people and companies I think are doing amazing work building customer equity. If you'd like to receive this nugget of goodness each week, you can sign up at ambitiondata.com and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoy the signal. See you next week on the Customer Equity Accelerator.